ago, today, I sat in Dubuque Seminary's uh, classroom in a classroom and had a panic attack. <laughs> not, not a literal panic attack, but um, I was deeply aware that I had two days till I came home. I had a year of seminary left, and I was starting here. And I was really uh, sure y'all would figure out that you'd made a mistake. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, really? Why, don't, why was I thinking? What, what are we doing? This is gonna... And uh, God is good. And I, uh, you know, before we jump into today and this sermon, I just want you to know it has been such a privilege to get to walk these last four years with Ferris Drive Reformed Church. I, uh, some days we joke, in fact, my husband and I, we've been kind of reflecting this week because we took our daughter uh, to college, back, moved her back in uh, Friday, and we were kind of thinking about how much has happened over the last four years, and and we pretty much summed it up. Some days it feels like it's been four weeks, and some days it feels like it's been 40 years. And uh, yet, when you think about the amount of transition, right, that this body has been through in four years, the number of people we've welcomed, people we've said goodbye to, uh, changes that have been made in how we do ministry together, God has been so incredibly faithful, I believe, to us. And I am just grateful for the opportunity to get to stand here this morning and talk about where I think God is taking us next. For the last three years, um, maybe you've noticed, in August, I usually try to take two or three weeks to talk about where we've been and where we're going and kind of a State of the Union-ish type thing. Um, although I told uh, Gary and Josh they did not have to come sit behind me and stand up and applaud. So we'll, we'll forego that part, all right? But I am excited uh, about what I think God might be doing among us uh, right now. So if you would pray with me, uh, I want to talk about neighborhoods. So would you pray? God, it is our privilege and our delight to worship you. For once we were lost and now we're found. We were blind and now we see. We were dead and you have made us new. And you have been faithful. You have been faithful and kind over the last, not just four years, but seven decades, God. And you promised your disciples that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So we come with anticipation this morning. God, I pray that your word would come alive in a powerful way today, that a passage which might seem familiar would be new again today because of your spirit. So quicken our hearts, sharpen our minds, give us ears to hear and a humility to receive whatever you want to say to your church this morning. 
And all God's people said, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning in Luke 10. We're going to begin at verse 25. This is a passage that has been deeply influential for me as I think about not just ministry here at Meredith Drive Reformed Church, but ministry in general. It's a passage that I return to often when I think about what it means to follow Jesus. And I know that if you've grown up in church, this may be a very, very familiar church or passage to you. I'm guessing even if you didn't grow up in church, this might sound like a familiar passage. But my hope today is that we'll encounter it in a fresh way. So if you've got your Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Luke 10, 25 through, we're going to start at verse 25 if you want to use the Pew Bible, or you can just follow along if you'd like. Now, we're going to enter this story with a discussion between Jesus and an expert in the Bible. He was such an expert that he would have been in his day called a lawyer for the Bible. Okay, so this is a man who knows his scriptures inside and out. And we pick up the occasion when he stands to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? I love how Jesus answers a question with a question. That's a smart parenting technique right there, right? Flush the hand out first. So the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want to pause first here. Actually, that's technically two commands. Uh, One from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. But what this expert in the law recognized, and actually I think Jesus roundly affirms in a minute, is that these two commands, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, these, these together are two sides of one coin. It's impossible to pull them apart. We cannot love our neighbor if we don't first love God, and we can't love God and not love our neighbor. And so this expert recognizes that these two concepts live together and must. And in fact, Jesus affirms him. He says, absolutely, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, actually, the Greek uh, language that this was written in originally, the more literal translation would be, Jesus said, do this and you will be living. You will be living. There's an activeness to it. In fact, it's a present tense, which is kind of interesting because if you notice, the expert asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking about what must I do to make... Sure, I live in the future. And Jesus shifts it and says, do this and you will be living now. Not to mention what's coming. So the the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now let's push pause there for a minute. 
don't know quite why he asked that question. I mean, it could be that he was like, ooh, okay, well, I was trying to test Jesus, and that did not go the way I was planning. So maybe I'll, he was maybe a little embarrassed and wanted to, you know, get more of a conversation going. But the other reality is that the question of who is my neighbor was a very active one at this time in history. See, the law was clear, right? We just saw it, cited it from Leviticus 6, that the Jewish people were called to love their neighbor. God had asked that of them. But there were all kinds of debates and discussions about, well, who qualified really as a neighbor? And at this time, if they were other Jews, then they were for sure a neighbor. Check, right? Gotta love them. People who were interested in becoming Jews, there was some debate about that. Not sure if they were really technically a neighbor or not. And if you were not a Jew, that was an easy one. That was a hard no, right? So, in fact, um, here's, a, here's a quote from a writer at the time, one of the religious leaders. He said, heretics, informers, and renegades should be pushed into a ditch, not pulled out. Right? Like, whoa, okay. So clearly no obligation to people who do not agree with us theologically. That's the discussion. And, you know, we can giggle about that. I mean, you know. I don't, I'm not going to run around advocating pushing people into ditches. But I think, like us, they were pretty skilled at trying to figure out who's in my orbit, who am I responsible for, and who am I not? Who am I called to love, and who, well, that's a step too far. I'm justified in not loving that particular. They're, they're not my neighbor. They're not my neighbor. So... It's an interesting moment, and I'm sure everybody who's listening leans in, because this is a hot topic. What's Jesus going to say? Is he going to say that the people who want to become Jews are neighbors, or is he going to, where's he going to land on that one? Because that's really, to be very honest with you, the only live question in this debate. And Jesus, master teacher that he is, tells a story. So let's jump into that story now. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is very dangerous. It was actually called the way of blood at the time. It descends nearly 3,000 feet in only 20 miles. That's a lot of territory. Has anybody actually seen this? I know some folks in the room have been to Israel. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Treacherous road? Yeah. One of the questions is it meanders back and forth. There's a, so it's very mountainous, very rocky is my understanding. I've just seen the pictures. Um, lots of places where you can get ambushed and that's what happened here. Now, what we find out is that he was attacked by robbers. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, that is not a cheeky tongue and 
uh, tongue-in-cheek reference to Princess Bride, by the way, for those of you who know the movie. Um, it's actually a, a technical term. Half-dead means he was unconscious and couldn't speak. Okay? Half-dead means he couldn't speak. Now, that's important because in this culture, there were a couple of ways you identified people. Let me ask, in this culture, what are ways you identify people? Clothes and how they talk, right? Those are, all, those are still key indicators. We look at people and we make assumptions based on what they wear and how they talk. This man has now been stripped of anything that would tell a passerby what ethnicity they are, who they belong to, what status they have. It's all gone. We just have now a bloodied, unconscious human being who is vulnerable and has no community. Now, I'm sure at this moment, it would be easy for the expert to be leaning in, trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy? Is he, what kind of man is it? Is he a churchgoer? Is he not? What kind of news channel does he watch? What's his sexual orientation? Is he employed? Is he legal? Is he... Because he's looking for cues that will tell him what is the right answer right now, whether this man is a neighbor or not. And he gets no help from Jesus. So we go on into the story. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the other man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed him by on the other side. Now, it's not uncommon. A priest is a religious professional, right? They make their living. In this day, I would be a priest. Gary would be a priest. Josh would be a priest. These are the people who were paid to be in the house of the Lord. Levites would have been like lay leaders, small group leaders. They're not paid, but they are high-level invested volunteers. And actually, there was a rotation. Every two weeks, people would go and serve at the temple, priests and Levites, in Jerusalem, and then they'd return home. And so probably these two men, they would have been men at the time, had finished their rotation and they're headed home. And so... The priests, likely, because priests in this time were upper class, was probably riding a donkey, and the Levite was probably walking. That would have been assumed at that day in that culture. It would be like saying a farmer's going into town. Of course they're driving their pickup. We don't say that. We just know they're going to hop in their pickup. So, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pam Dykstra took our whole staff through Crucial Conversations training, which was really good, by the way. Um, and one of the things that's true is when stakes are high and things are happening, and that um, it's easy for us to tell ourselves stories about what's going on. And one of the stories you have to be careful of telling when you're in a situation is telling what she calls villain stories. Now, villain, the villain story basically says that the other person is the problem. They carry all the guilt 
And this is super easy to do in conflict. Um, I never do it. You can ask my husband. Just kidding. Don't ask him. You will so get an earful. Um, <laughs> but villain stories tend to relieve us of responsibility, right? The other person is the bad guy. Now, I have to say, in this moment, in this story, it is super easy to tell a villain story, right? It is so easy to make these two guys villains. They are jerks. And you know what? The only trouble is that lets us off the hook. And so the way you counter a villain story is you ask a simple question. What would a reasonable, rational, decent person, why would they do something like this? Now that's a, just tuck that away for the next time you're in conflict and you're wanting to make somebody a villain. But let's actually ask this question this morning of these two men. Why would rational, reasonable, decent people walk by on the other side? This is not a rhetorical question. This is one of those moments when I'm going to make you answer me, right? So let's see hands. Why would, why would reasonable, rational, decent people do this? Fear. Fear. Because what happens if the bandits are still there, right? How do I know this isn't a trap? Right? So I think that's a very, very good reason it might happen. Yeah, John. Oh, that's good, right? I don't know. I'm not a paramedic. I'm not an EMT. I don't know. So maybe I, maybe I shouldn't get involved, right? That, that would be the logical thing to do, is not get involved. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, back here. I am in a hurry. Bingo. How many of you would say that one? Absolutely, right? I'm, I'd like to help, but uh, I'm kind of busy. Been gone for two weeks. My wife's going to kill me if I stop. No, not. Nah. Okay, what else? Why else would a reasonable, rational, decent person do this? They don't know them. I don't know them. So it's really not, it's not really my problem. I don't know them. It's better to just stay They'd probably be offended if I helped, right? Yeah. Too expensive. Say more about that. They, they got to take, something's going to have to happen here. Yeah. Something's going to, I don't know if I could do that. That's costly. Do you know what? So it's even more costly than we realize in our culture. Because, here's the truth. If he, this man happens to be dead or he happens to be not Jewish, these two religious leaders now become what their culture calls unclean, which means they will have to take care of him. Then they have to go back up to Jerusalem before they can go home. They have to go stand in the uh, line with people who are unclean they have to buy a sacrifice, and they have to go through the ritual of becoming clean, which will take another five, six, seven days. It's another week before they get home. Not to mention, okay, now while we're on this moment, imagine what are the other priests going to think if priest number one comes back and stands over here in this line? What? He's only been gone a day. How did he end up unclean? What did he do? Can you imagine that might be a little humiliating? 
a little embarrassing to risk that, to end up over here in this line for somebody I don't even know. Do you begin to understand why they didn't do anything? <laughs> See, for me, this just gets real. We've come up with a lot of the ones I came up with. I was talking about we're in a hurry and it's not my problem. And that peer pressure. Oh, that's the other thing. So I'm going to need some help from the people who've been, I've been told that when you're coming down the road, you can actually see in front of you because it's so steep. Is that true? Depending on the parts? Yes, yeah, Steve's saying yes. Good, thank you, Steve, for nodding, even if it's not true. Um, <laughs> right. So probably the Levite watched the priest go by. So probably the Levite's like, well, okay, if he didn't help, then... Clearly, it's not okay for me to help, right? It's costly. It could be humiliating. It could be fearful. Now, do any of you resonate with these reasons? I do. I was thinking about a situation. A couple years ago, I met a friend for coffee at the... There's a Burger King and a gas station that are sort of together right up here off of 2nd Avenue, right? It was close. It was an easy place for us to meet. And so we were sitting in Burger King having a cup of coffee and talking. And uh, as we were talking, all of a sudden I became aware of this woman. She was, and I can, I mean, like you can tell, I literally can see it. She was standing right over here and I just became aware of her crying initially. And so, you know, I hate that when I'm distracted. I'm trying to stay focused on someone. So I'm trying to, like, disregard that. Only I keep, I just keep, and then I, and then I start realizing, like, okay. So I start realizing, oh, her car's broken down. And she's from Indiana. And then I become aware, which, you know, clearly you can ask someone who was with me that day. I was having a hard time because I I'm, it's like the Holy Spirit turned up the antenna on this and then I can start hearing the person who she's trying to go meet um, a boyfriend calling her names that should never be called anyone because she's stranded herself in the middle of nowhere and uh, I got to be honest with you every single one of these went through my head right this is my last appointment for the day. I'm supposed to have dinner with my husband. I don't have time to have a conversation with a random woman in a gas station. And, okay, really, this is not my problem. Like, she's not even from Iowa. Like, right? There's a little part of me that I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you my inner dialogue so that maybe it exposes yours, too. Right? And I'm sitting with someone, and I don't want to look at them and say, I'm so sorry. I know we're having a conversation, but this person over here is bleeding out emotionally and I'm like whoa and if I step into this I don't know what it means and uh, and, and and she will think I'm an idiot if I approach her right see I think these things happen to all of us and if we aren't careful we let them win we make excuses why we don't need to be involved. And truthfully, it's easier not to be. But 
That's not where Jesus leaves the story, right? We know this. And honestly, if you were listening to this story, what you would have expected next would have been just an average Jewish person. But Jesus flips the tables on their heads because he says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then put the man on his own donkey to help. Friends, we, I don't think we can even begin to understand the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It's way deeper than the Hatfields and McCoys or the Sharks and the Jets or Hamilton and Burr or Apple and Microsoft. This is despised, mortally hated enemy. And Jesus makes this man the hero of the story. He comes and I, I don't like the English here. He took pity on him, right? That's a word that feels very thin to me. The word is actually a very strong, it's like his bowels were moved. He was from the deepest depth of his soul. He was moved by compassion. And he went to the man, right? Do you hear the, do you hear the difference? The others went around. He goes to and he bandages him he does actually he counters the violence and the neglect of all of the other three right did you notice that he goes to when the others avoided when the priest stayed on his animal the samaritan gave his animal up and then led that animal as a servant the first man The Levite could have offered first aid, and the Samaritan pours oil and wine. And the attackers robbed him, and the Samaritan, as we find out, restores him and takes him to an inn and pays the money so that when the man regains consciousness, he will not get thrown in jail. Because if you can't pay your bill in this time, you go to jail. The Samaritan goes above and beyond to care for him. He exhibits courage and humility and generosity. He crosses cultural boundaries, and most of all, he is willing to get off his donkey. Pun intended. There you go. Some of us got it now. There you go. And so Jesus looks at the expert of the law and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say Samaritan, right? And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Keep doing this and you are living is the literal you know the word neighbor in both greek and hebrew has a very simple connotation to be near 
to be near. And the real question Jesus asks, and the real question becomes is, to whom must you become a neighbor? And the answer is not defined by affinity, it's defined by need. Even an enemy in need. The nature of God and faith are violated when we pretend not to see the need around us. Now, likely, I hope, you have already started thinking about this for yourself. And that's good and right. I want you to be having that conversation with yourself. And as you have that conversation with yourself, I want to put one caveat on this. Do not say what I am, do not hear what I am not saying. I am not saying you are responsible for every need in the world, right? I'm not saying that your job is to single-handedly now go out and save every person around you and meet every single need, right? But the trouble is we'll swing to that and then what? That immobilizes us, it overwhelms us, and we end up doing nothing. And the truth is if we would just be willing to sort of let God move us one need at a time, then we wouldn't get so overwhelmed. But my job this morning is not just to make you think individually. My job this morning as your lead pastor is to ask, what does this mean for our church? And what does this mean for our two campuses? And in light of the opportunity we have right now in front of us, with the flooding of the basement, we are obligated to ask this question. I believe. Because we are surrounded in both of our campuses by neighbors who are half dead, robbed of dignity, beaten by shame. There is institutional poverty around both of our campuses. There is unemployment. There are health crises. There is mental illness and food scarcity. And when the people next door, those nearest, right, those who drive here on Sundays and worship together. When the people next door to our building suffer, when they go to bed hungry, when children don't learn to read and we refuse to get off our donkey, we must not be shocked when young people walk away from the church. We must not. Because the truth is our neighbors are asking they cry out in need. And if we are going to people, be a people and a church who honor the nature of God and faith, who live in the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, then we should be asking, how do we position our buildings and our campuses and our resources to serve our neighbors in tangible ways? If we rebuild this building without asking that question, if we make it only about us, we will have violated this. And so the beauty is we have a moment right now together where we can pause and ask our neighbors, what do you need? In fact, that's part of what we're doing right now. Our senior staff and some of our other staff are literally having conversations. So at this campus, Gary and Josh and others of us are having conversations with the manager of the apartment complex right here. 
And we're talking to the, actually the principal from Hoover was here uh, Friday, toured our building Thursday. Sherry is her name. We've had conversations with the urban garden over here. We're networking with pastors from Zion and Westchester and St. Andrews. We are asking the question together, God, what do we need to do to serve our neighbors tangibly? And then let's let that drive the question of what we do next with that basement area, with the rest of the building, with the bridge. Let's use our resources in tangible ways. Because if we do this, we'll be living. I have to tell you, that's where the 50-50 thing came from, right? You, you hear it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you, I got more feedback. I got, we, we got people from all over the country that said, really? Your church is doing that? I had five separate conversations with people under 25 who said to me, I'm not sure about the church, but this thing, this is cool. This is cool. If we will have the courage to not make this all about us. Now, it will be some about us. We need to worship, okay? So don't hear what I'm not saying. But if we could begin to imagine and dream, what would it look like if we created a tutoring center? A space that could be used, a safe place for kids after school. Because by the way, just so you know, the myth that this neighborhood is dying is way overrated. There are kids out in this neighborhood all the time in this parking lot. Yesterday, we had an ad board meeting right before I made the whole ad board get up. I was like, do you see? There's six kids in the back riding bikes. We got kids everywhere around us. We just don't know how to reach them yet. And we're going to. That's our call. Now, I know that can be overwhelming and a little bit intimidating. And it scares me a lot of days. It makes me think, is it safe? like we're too busy to figure this out but then then I remember I was once half dead I was once half dead robbed of my dignity beaten by my shame and then my enemy came riding on a donkey And moved by compassion, came near and dwelt with me. And paid the cost for me to be made new. And then promised he'd come back. And then I want to get off my donkey. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you did not treat us as enemies and walk away. Would you give us a heart and wisdom and courage and humility to listen to the cries of our neighbors? Literally, the neighbors who are right next door to us. And might we
everything together. Figure out how to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.